Yeah, so let's pray um, and open our hearts. Jesus, we thank you um, that we can be ourselves in this space. We thank you that you, God, is sovereign in all of your ways um, towards us and towards creation. Lord, would you cover us? Would you cover me? Would you speak through me? And would you allow us to hear clearly what you have to say today? Pray to us all in Jesus' name. Amen. So, um, in our recent study of Acts 6, we talked about a man named Stephen. In our small encounter with Stephen, we learned so much about his character. At the beginning of chapter 6, we saw that he was one of the selected leaders to help with the care of widows. Luke describes Stephen as a servant full of faith full of grace and full of the power of the Holy Spirit. In Luke's language, he says that even Stephen's opponents could not stand against the wisdom the Spirit gave him as he spoke. And even after he was arrested, verse 15 says his face, his countenance, shined like an angel as he was accusing the court. The charges against Stephen are recorded as, for we have heard him say that this Jesus of Nazareth will destroy this place and change the customs Moses handed down to us. Early in verse 11, Stephen was accused of speaking blasphemous words against Moses and God. So Stephen is on trial for opposing Moses, his customs, God, and his temple. So I want us to know that this is not just a slap on the wrist, that this is a serious charge against Moses. Not not against Moses, but against Stephen, sorry. So today, we are in chapter 7. It begins with Caiaphas, the high priest, asking Stephen directly if the charges laid against him were true. He asks Stephen, "Are, are these charges true? This question may seem like a a question of curiosity, but this is a question that is rooted in social and religious identity. They are essentially saying, are you one of us? Or are you our enemy, bound to false teaching and false teachers? Are these charges laid against you true? However, in Stephen's offense, he does not respond to the charges. He does not respond to the unspoken fears of Jewish leaders. He is not looking to win an argument. Rather, Stephen's offense is an announcement of the Jewish, an announcement of the Christian message in light of popular Judaism of the day. It's an indictment of the Jewish leaders' failure to recognize Jesus as their Messiah. It's a protest to reorient the faith of his Jewish brothers from the temple to the Messiah. Stephen's sermon is the longest in the book of Acts. It's longer than Peter's. And it serves as a catalyst for what is to come 
For the reaction to the sermon leads to the scattering of witnesses into Judea and Samaria. So this is Gentile territory. So this is a, a catalyst to, to move this message to the other parts of the world. The Holy Spirit thought it was important enough for Luke to record it to an extent that he did to potentially show Luke's large Gentile audience a brief history of God's dealings with Israel. And maybe to depict how Stephen's last days were parallel to of his master, Jesus. So rather than working and reading through the entire message in details, which would take far too much time, because there's about 51 verses. I'm not going to sit here and read each verse to you because it's a lot. But I would invite you to turn to it anyways, because I would try to guide us through it, reading key verses and trying to understand what Stephen said, what he said. So as I was pondering and reading over and over this message, Stephen's message, I landed on two dominant themes woven throughout Stephen's sermon. One is, God is not bound to geography. And two, Jews have a long history of rejecting God's messengers. I'll say that again. One, God is not bound to geography. And two, Jews have a long history of rejecting God's messengers. And he centers his argument on the three great pillars of Jewish piety. One, the land of the Jews, the turf of Jews. Two, the law of Moses. And three, the temple, these sacred things that they care deeply about. So let's look through these two themes together, followed by application for us. One, God is not bound to geography. By looking at the origins of Jews and their history of migration and displacement, we can understand that sacred land has always been the focus of Jewish dreams and Jewish efforts since God's promise to Abraham. We kind of know the biblical story of God giving Abraham this blessing that him and his offspring will have a land of milk and honey. So the Jews in Stephen's day knew that their land was special. They were fiercely loyal to the land, fiercely loyal to Jerusalem and the temple. They considered Jerusalem to be the cosmic center where heaven and earth met. They considered Israel holier than other lands. Jerusalem as the holiest city and the temple as the holiest place on earth. Therefore, Anyone who spoke against their holy land or their temple was deemed blasphemous. To oppose the land, Jerusalem, and the law was to be an offense and against God. So we must understand that their allegiance to land, allegiance to the law, allegiance to the temple, shaped their understanding of the world. It shaped their understanding of themselves. It shaped their understanding of their relationship with God. So by holding high esteem for sacred land, Jewish leaders seemed to abandon the notion that it was God who defines sacred places and not powers given to human institutions. That it was God who plays the central role in Israel's story and our story. 
and who initiates conversation, revelation, commission, and belonging. It was God who defined it. This is why Stephen pressed against their foundations by redrawing the lines of Israel's story. He begins his message by sharing Israel's past history. Past heroes, I meant to say, sorry. It's Abraham, it's Joseph, Moses, and their call to be servants in foreign territories with God's message. Starting at the most fundamental place with God's call of Abraham, Stephen states this. The glory of God appeared to our father Abraham while he was still in Mesopotamia before he lived in Haran. Jews associated the glory of God, the Shekinah glory of God, with the movement tabernacle in the wilderness. So right at the beginning of his speech or his sermon, Stephen establishes that God needs neither tent or temple to work with humans. God revealed himself to Abraham not in Jerusalem, but he revealed himself in pagan Mesopotamia. We might ask the question, what is God doing there? We ask that question a lot about the places that we see God moving in places in Northview Heights or places in Marshall Shalin. We think God operates in zip codes, right? God is in Wexford, God is in Cranberry, but God also moves in places we call pagan, right? Just want you to see if you guys are tracking here with me. So in the same way, Stephen goes on to explain the account of Joseph, that God was with Joseph and his brothers in Egypt, again, outside the promised land. He says, because the patriarchs were jealous of Joseph, they sold him as a slave in Egypt, but God was with him and rescued him from all his troubles. God did not save Jacob and his sons from famine in their new homeland. Rather, they had to go to Egypt where God rescued Joseph and his brothers in order to get food. See, Stephen continues to expose the account of Israel's history and how God saves people outside of Jerusalem and can work with humans anywhere he chooses. Okay? So in verse 20 to 43, Stephen now turns the story to Moses. In comparison, he continues to expose Israel's story of God's working beyond the walls of Jerusalem. He says that God raised Moses in Egypt. He provided for the rejected Moses in Midian. He commissioned Moses in the desert near Mount Sinai. We know the story where God meets Moses and he tells him to take off his shoes because he's stepping on holy ground. He met and revealed his power at the Red Sea and protected him in the wilderness for 40 years. Again, it, Stephen is explaining to his audience, to his brothers, that God is not always in Jerusalem, but God also functions in Gentile territory. Stephen demonstrates two things. No matter how holy the Holy Land is or how holy the temple is, God is not bound to geography. He is not a caged bird who works, who work was limited to place. 
its institution, land, and people. For an example, um, in April of this year, I went to a conference with Dennis and two other um, people who attend Garden City, and it was in Florida, first time in Florida. We went to this church. They had this conference. It was this, it just, it just was all evangelicals. It was white. It was, it was smoke coming from the ground. It was all this hype around worship. And I was in there like this. I'm not raising my hand. I'm not praising God in here. And I was looked over at Dennis. He was doing the same exact thing. <laughs> we were both sitting there like, no, this is not a place where God is. By the end of the worship service, I was in there like this. Oh, my God, God is in here. Right? So we do the same thing. Even if we go to places that we left, we assume that God is not in those places. But in that trip, I met God. In that trip, Dennis met God, God's presence. So again, God is not, is not bound to geography. God is not bound to place or the walls of the church. Two, Jews have a long history of rejecting their Savior. Stephen's accusers have claimed he has blasphemed the law of Moses by claiming it was done in the name of Jesus. Again, the popular uh, piety of Stephen's day revered and idolized the law of God. To be accused of speaking in blasphemous terms against the law and Moses was a very serious case. Again, I want to keep telling us that it wasn't just a slap on the wrist. It was a serious case. To attack Moses is to attack God's law. So in response, Stephen spends most of his time on Moses. He knows he is swimming in dangerous waters, for this accusation goes against the popular Jewish understanding of themselves as God's people. This is their foundation that they build everything on. So in honor of Moses and the law, Stephen does agree that Moses, the mediator between God and his people, was an appointed deliverer. He then adds that Moses also receives living words to pass on to Israel about another prophet who will be raised up among them. He says this, God will raise up for you a prophet like me from your own people. He, Moses, was in the assembly in the wilderness when the angel who spoke to him in the wilderness and with our ancestors, with those around him, And he received living words to pass on to us. By calling the words living, Stephen implies that those living words have relevance to him and his audience. As a way of saying, God's revelation and work cannot be limited to the law Moses had given to the nation. There is additional revelation from God that the people must not ignore. But then comes the turning point of Stephen's sermon. He says of Israel's reaction to protect and defend Moses and his law, he says this, our people refuse to obey him. He says that Israel was a people who rejected Moses and in their hearts turned back to Egypt. He says Israel was a people who made an idol, the golden calf, and worshiped it. He says that Israel was a people who have a history of 
disobeying the law from the very beginning and the prophet when he came. Stephen is, is pointing out the repeated pattern of behavior, both on the part of God sending leaders to Israel and of God's people rejecting their saviors. Jo- uh, Joseph, Moses, Jesus, and now the apostles. Stephen's response is essentially saying this, it is not I, but you, the Jewish leaders, who are violating and disobeying Moses and his law. You rejected jo- uh, Joseph, you exiled him. You rejected Moses, you exiled him. You rejected God who came in human flesh, who came in tabernacle among us. You rejected the spirit who lives through us, and you chose Moloch. You chose the institution over the Messiah. You are no different from our ancestors. Again, he points out this this history of Jewish people having a resume of rejecting the deliverers, rejecting God's sent messengers. Later on, we will learn that Stephen, the deacon, was martyred by first century nationalists, killed just like that because they was holding close to turf, holding close to the law, holding close to the temple. So what does this mean for us? See, many of us have been raised in conservative Christian systems with modern equivalents to Stephen's sermon about the three great pillars of popular Jewish piety, the land, the law, and the temple. We grew up with the belief that America, the land of the free, is the new Israel. We grew up believing that the U.S. constitutional law is a Christian document divinely inspired by God. We grew up believing that the temple of capitalism delivers God's kingdom in favor into the world. But biblically speaking, it's not true at all. In actuality, these beliefs are actually manifestations of Christian nationalism. Now, some of us are familiar with the concept of Christian nationalism, and some of us are not. If you are not familiar with it, I would encourage you to do some research and understand its roots. And if you need more understanding and about this kind of topic, you can kind of reach out to me or Dennis, or you can actually use other kind of trustworthy resources um, to point you in the right direction. Christian nationalism contends that America has been and should always be distinctively Christian from top to bottom. In it, self-identity, interpretations of its own history, sacred symbols and cherished values and public policies and its goal is to keep in that way. But for generations, we blindly hold on to these foundational white ideologies to keep us and our children safe and comfortable because we fear the loss of exclusive white space. We fear the loss of exclusive white rule. 
We fear the loss of exclusive white flourishing. We have embodied and embedded this doctrinal myth to such a level that out of instinct, that if anyone opposes, triggers, or threatens America's foundational securities, we react with bitterness, anger, and sometimes even violence. And we think that we are giving God's justice. We are doing God's justice by defending our country, by defending our land, by defending our laws, by defending our temple. We see it as blasphemous to oppose America and everything in it to, is to oppose our God. And some folks see it as a serious charge that those people who speak against this nation should be in jail. Their rights should be taken away from them or they should move back where they came from, right? It's the same response the Jewish institution had with the Old Testament prophets, Jesus and his disciples, to oppose Jerusalem, to oppose the law of Moses, to oppose the temple is to oppose our God. So what do we do? We do the same. We stone our prophets. We stone God-sent messengers. And we emotionally and spiritually silence those who bring the good news. Because deep in our being, deep in our native blood, we believe that we have an exception, exceptional status, whether before God or before the world, to be the city set on the hill. Deep down, we believe that we are exerting the faithfulness of God. But in reality, we are not. What we are actually doing is just perpetrating the insidious roots of Christian nationalism, defending what we think is right. So as disciples of Jesus, we should think carefully about America's history, not just bad, but also the good. We should think carefully about nationalism and the interplay of Christ and American identity. We should stand against these expressions that twist and corrupt Christ and the movement of the spirit. And don't think I got it all figured out because I don't. It's a new word I heard over COVID. And I was just like, what is this word? And I want to learn about it. I'm not a person who have arrived. I'm not a person who has, who understands this kind of matter. I'm still learning, I'm still unlearning. And I'm rediscovering who Jesus is with you. And guess what? I will still be American once I leave this place, right? I have work to do. But what I can say is this. The promised land is not the United States. It is the kingdom. The law is not our constitution. It is Jesus. The temple was not capitalism. The temple is the throne of God, where every tribe and nation are gathered to worship. That's what we are ambassadors for. That's what Stephen displayed for us by risking not just his Jewish rights, but he risked his whole body. Most of us will be willing to risk our body for our country, 
but not willing to risk our body for our Savior. Right? We got it all mixed up, man. But Jesus' words just, Jesus' words apply just as much to us. It's very easy to be like, yeah, them. I'm going to speak to you now, okay? So just, so Jesus' words apply just as much to us when he said this. Why do you see the speck in your brother's eye, but do not notice the log in your own eye? See, many of us are starting to wake up to systems of oppression that, have previously, that we have been previously naive to. Often this is accompanied by shame, right? We wake up to systems, it's like, oh man, I'm a horrible white person, you know what to do is? I'm just gonna join them, but don't actually do the work that we need to do internally. So often this is accompanied by shame, but soon this posture begins to shift to self-righteousness, right? It shifts to self-righteousness. We can quick, we can be quick to critique the same group we used to identify with, but we still have work to do. We still have work to repair. Just because you have Jesus in your hearts, church, doesn't mean you get to avoid granddad in your bones, right? It's because you accepted him and believe in him. Don't mean that you got American soil still deep in your, in your bones. See, it's easy to defend who you are by what and what you are not. It's easy to find a group or a new church that shares your commitment to justice and label others as stereotypes or enemies because they don't share your understanding of justice. See, it's easy to buy your merch, your social merch. Put stuff on your lawn, love is love, science is this, black, yeah, you, it's easy, right? It's easy to put on your pole, the pride flags and say, I stand with them in solidarity, right? That's, those things aren't necessarily wrong, right? I, I think God honors us when we stand in true solidarity with those people who are excluded from the, from the community of God. But it's easy, it's easy to, it's just another bumper sticker, but we're just putting it on our lawn and say, you know what, I stand with them and I ain't got to do nothing. Long as I can just talk, and say I'm about that and not really do it. But it's easy to divorce your marital commitment to the home of the free and yet hold on to the role as a mistress. It's easy to renounce the idea of constitutional laws and yet hold on to your American liberties. It's easy to reject the temple of capitalism and yet give your offerings to the altar of unnecessary greed and self-interest. Maybe some of us aren't that far off. Clearly I'm not. See, you can, you can exchange one side of the other and still perpetrate and bolster a sense of self-righteousness because we are on the right side of history. Church, we too, we too, me included, can create another set of sacred pillars of all kinds of beliefs 
creeds, principles, philosophies that can be in opposition to God's biblical truth, that can be in opposition to the work of the Holy Spirit. We too can create another form of nationalism if we're not careful. So my question to you is, what are the ways the gospel threatens your foundations? Clearly threatened the Sanhedrin, their foundations, but how is the gospel threatening your foundations? Is it threatening your generational wealth, your financial security? What is it? Is it the educational system and the way that you choose the way where you live? What is it? I think it does, because I think that the gospel still threatens my foundations. I want to control a lot of things. And God's like, no, you need to trust in me. I want to have this thing. And God's like, no, you need to trust in me. So what are the ways that the gospel threatens your foundations? Just think about that. I will give you some, some time before I pray. I just, I spoke a lot, but I just want to create a little silence of you asking God, God, what are the ways that I'm, I need to be, your gospel needs to threaten my foundations? Is it doctrine? I need to just tell people I'm right. I'm, I need to tell them this is what it, what it is. But just take a couple minutes and I'll pray. And then we'll get together with communion. What are the ways the gospel threatens my foundations? Jesus, we get you wrong so many times. We think, you get, we think we understand you. I know the disciples often try to think they understand you. They were out constantly asking, who's going to be the first? Who's going to sit on the right? Who's going to sit on the left? And Jesus, you, you shattered their interpretations of you. You can't be boxed in. Jesus, would you forgive us for the ways that we have bolstered in self-righteousness? Would you forgive us for clinging to our foundations? Would you forgive our nation for rejecting you and choosing to hold on to fear? God, you constantly tell us to fear not. You have overcome the world. So help us understand that you have overcome the world, overcome every institutional power, every injustice, every evil in the world, and you can do it. In Jesus' name, amen. Maybe we need to put our stores down. That's, in my head I was praying, I said, maybe we need to put our swords down. Jesus told Peter, put your sword away. Maybe we need to put our swords away.